Yeah, I mean, I consider myself a, a, genu- a genuinely curious person. I'm curious about life. And, um, and I always thought of myself as a business reporter who uh, happened to cover sports, not a sports reporter who happened to cover business. You are listening to the Live Better Show with Brett and Jason, where we dive into life crushers changing their game, talking about wellness, and sharing a message of putting plan into action. Live Better is based on five pillars. Move better, eat better, think better, give better, and live better. We move for freedom, to do and go where and when we want. We practice good nutrition to combat an age of being overfed and undernourished. We practice mindfulness for ways to live purposefully. We give better as the basis for why we do anything at all, especially when focusing on the health of our clients and community. And at the intersection of it all, we live better. Health and wellness is the sustainable fuel to do whatever it is in life you want to do better. Our guests share their story, their mission, and the pursuit of having the best day ever every single day. Hey! Turn up, bitch! (laughs) The Live Better Show is brought to you by Live Better Retreats. Come join us on an epic adventure where we will fuel your body, your mind, and your spirit to accomplish new goals. This time is the right time for you to join us on an epic Live Better experience. This full immersion opportunity will grant you access to the best in nutrition, wellness, movement, yoga, and an amazing community you will bring home after the trip. Right now, you can join us on a Live Better experience to have the best day ever every single day. Let's crush it, fam. Brett and Jason here. Super excited to have Darren Ravel on the podcast today. How are you doing today, Darren? I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, we're super excited. And uh, I want to uh, kick this episode off by just bringing it back to uh, this is Brett here about how you and I met. And so um, everybody knows that Jason and I are, are Nike trainers. And um, last year for the marathon, Um, We did a bunch of mental coaching, so we led meditations and mindfulness workshops around running that race, and I led a meditation for uh, a bunch of runners that came in, and uh, Darren was one of of those in there, and right after that, uh, you and I just started chatting and connecting, and uh, we've been talking ever since, so uh, I would love to just kind of start from there, and how'd the marathon go? Yeah, I mean, I never, I, 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 never had something like that where you kind of took us through the race, and I thought you were great at it. I felt like you did a good job of kind of almost like hypnotizing me, and at the same time, I was very aware of what was happening, but I didn't lose myself, which is good. Um, you know, I, uh, I like to do some challenges, um, and uh, I felt like uh, when I hit my 40th birthday in June, I really uh, wanted to do something completely different. Um, I had run the New York Marathon a little bit less seriously in 2004. I ran a 507 um, just to run it and say, hey, I'm going to run it slow. And if I only have one marathon in my life, I'm going to enjoy it. I think I took a different tack this time, which was uh, I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to name a time that I'm going to beat uh, I'm going to announce the time that I'm going to beat. I'm going to put myself out there um, to the world. I'm going to show my training mostly on Instagram story, little on Twitter, and I'm going to beat that at time. 
So uh, that was kind of my goal when I said I was going to run less than a 4.30. Um, I felt like I needed to cheat a little bit, which was to ask Nike if they would allow me to have a concierge service of sorts, which was to uh, have Megan O'Brien, who is uh, someone who I've mentored in the broadcasting business, who's a former Northwestern cross-country runner, who's run many marathons, pretty much in the 320 range, um, if I could have her run with me. And uh, so that was it. And I can tell you more about our our race, but it was basically like, okay, you're going to tell me if we're running slower than 10 minutes or faster than nine minutes. Otherwise, I don't want to talk about pace or, or anything else. But what you did really, really helped. We, we ran a, a 4.24, uh, and I felt like we you know easily made it with time to spare and had a lot of fun. Boom. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm glad that uh, I was helpful on the journey, and I know that uh, your journey involved training um, physically and mentally. Can we can we dial it into um, some of the training that went into that, especially working with one of our buddies, Joe, out in New York? Right. So, um, you know, Joe quickly identified that he called me Tin Man. Um, I am uh, I have been very inflexible since sixth grade when I had a summer where I essentially grew six inches and I never really compensated for that, stretched for that, did anything. And so I have by nature, I have tight hamstrings. I was also a catcher as a kid. So um, my knees are really just not starting out good because I was, you know, bending over, uh, having my knees bent for full games. Um, and so that was that that was certainly the challenge. Um, I didn't have anything really ailing me, though we knew really early on from a gait analysis that um, I did not really run correctly, that that my the uh, the inward part of my knees would hurt after like three or four miles, which is not necessarily good for training. Um, so we we really didn't have time to change my running style like pro runners do. So basically what we did was we had uh, I was just running the way I ran and we worked on a lot of stretching and a lot of rehabilitation. Uh, I know that in 2004 I did almost no rehabilitation of anything at any point along the way and that made a big difference. I did uh, massage, I did heat and ice, I did dry needling, acupuncture, uh, everything. So kind of focusing on recovery a lot in lieu of changing my running style, which we knew wasn't good. Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, it's it's interesting to see you running it once and then running it again under different circumstances and the fact that you just acknowledged that you needed to change things and, and move forward. And I think that that's such a special thing to be able to understand where we're at and then be able to create plans to improve. And Right, uh, and the way, that, the way that Joe and I pretty much worked is we saw each other, you know, because he was traveling, I was traveling, we saw each other once a week, which is not really enough, but for about 15 weeks we saw each other once a week. You know, I think he's incredible. Uh, he's, a, he's very holistic. We got rid of some of the things. Um, one of the things that I had always told him that I felt like when I started out running, I, my, uh, my sides, the tops of my lungs were hurting essentially. And um, we, 
uh, got we, we did a good job um, of you know rolling some things out pre-rolling um, we got rid of club soda which I was drinking like six of a day um, he would slaughter me because he'd look at my Instagram story and I'd have like I'd eat like a bowl of cookie dough or something like that I I told him early on that I was not going to change my crazy way of eating through life but I would always get texts by you know where he would be like chill dude okay I mean, you got to chill out here um, so so that so that was pretty funny but we talked by text pretty much every day and uh, I would give him a progress report one of the things that was really interesting which was kind of uh, a, a switch in what happened was I got a job to shoot some commercial stuff with Dr. Pepper uh, in the final seven weeks of my training. And as luck would have it, two of the three cities I went to are not quite ideal for running 16 and 18 and 20 miles. So I, had to, I ran my 16 in Miami and my 18 in Austin, Texas. <laughs> um, and it just, for, for me, you know, and, and then after I was done with that, then I had to do a full day of shooting commercial stuff so it was like okay i'm getting paid to do this this is kind of fun but i had to make it my priority and just do it in the knowing that you know i had to do it in the city where it was going to be less than ideal in august or early september you know <laughs> running in these cities yeah that that's that it shows though that you're you put the the training first and you had that as your priority speaking of the commercial shoots and all of that um, I think one thing that just interests me about you particularly is um, I would love for you to answer the question that most people get asked right when they meet somebody, uh, but I feel like your answer is going to be interesting when somebody asks you what you do, what is your response? I, uh, I tell you things that you didn't think you needed to know, but when I tell you it, you you want it. I mean, that's that. That's that's what I focused my career on. Um, you know, since 2000, I've been covering the business side of sports. Which, when I first pitched it to ESPN, my senior year at Northwestern, you know, I basically said, "You guys can't afford to have generalists or you know AP, you know, Associated Press copy." because you're the worldwide leader in sports and you wouldn't do that for anything else. And, you know, I convinced them to cover the business of sports. And I think over time, fans have, if they don't understand the business of sports, if they don't understand their owner's capacity to spend, if they don't understand salary caps, how trades work, they cannot win at the water cooler. And so I've kind of, you know, in the beginning, I think people say, oh, why do I need to know the business of sports? I'm just a fan. Well, you can't be a fan anymore if you don't know the business of sports. And kind of what I've done with social is I've kind of been the pop-up video, to use an old kind of MTV term of, hey, you're watching a game, you're on Twitter, and I come with a fact that you didn't, you know, you didn't think about um, from a business standpoint or just something interesting. I spend like 20 or 30 hours a week trying to research things um, either that wind up in a story or become a tweet or become an Instagram post. Um, and so like for the Super Bowl coming up this week, uh, I'm going to have about 75 tweets that are pre-rolled, ready to go. 
Um, and some of those tweets have, you know, maybe an hour and a half or two hours of research into that one single tweet. Uh, because I think, as you guys can appreciate, you know, the niche really rules these days. Um, you know, you, you, being a jack of all trades is not not the best strategy. Uh, and and being someone who, again, when when you say who is Darren Ravel, someone can identify right away. Um, who are you guys? You know, people can say right away, and 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 that means a lot, and that has much more value than anyone who's a generalist. Darren, I think this is Jason. I think that's one of the things I've appreciated about your content for so long is that you can tell that some thought went into the back end of it, and it's just information from an angle that you don't normally think about. I think for the most, like for the casual fan, everybody sees what's happening on the field and you feel like everything's always driven by performance, but it makes it so much more interesting when we can see and learn about the business side of things because it definitely drives decisions. Like I think Mm -hmm. that's something that is like, kind of Santa, Santa Claus getting ruined. Like when you're younger, sport is right. just so pure. And then as soon as you enter, even now at the college level, we're having all these discussions about the business side of sports because, you know, players and owners, while they're technically on the same team, are kind of on the other side of things sometimes. Um, and that's what I've always appreciated about um, your content. You can just tell how much time and thought went into it. Where did you get the interest to start doing that? Like what? What? Well, I, what I drove you to myself, pitch ESPN? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I consider myself a a, genu- a genuinely curious person. I'm curious about life, and um, and I always thought of myself as a business reporter who uh, happened to cover sports, not a sports reporter who happened to cover business. And you know, when I was when I was coming up, I clearly had an idea. My dad uh, was a specialist, a niche guy in life, although, you know, it wasn't this overt conversation about, you know, son, you need to be a niche guy. But I kind of learned through osmosis, through seeing what he did and how successful he was that niche people rule. Um, he, he had a PhD or he has a PhD in biophysics and biochemistry and also has an awareness of marketing. So he started a consultancy firm that uh, where medical companies would hire him and like people, you know, like him um, under his umbrella, where the scientists would finally talk to the marketers. There was this big gap where that didn't happen. Some of the biggest medical companies in the world, and that cost them hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. So I had seen that, and so I had known all along. I was actually a, I was a theater major at Northwestern. I was in operas. I was in plays. I believe I was good enough to be on Broadway, still do, um, and my, my sophomore year, I just thought about the realities of jobs, and I thought about, uh, you know, being a wait, maybe I would be the man and get on Broadway, and then six months later, I'd have a, I'd be a waiter at some diner, and it did, just didn't seem like there would be an upward career trajectory that I needed. And so, you know, I was the I was the editor of the weekly paper, um, the sports editor. I was on WNUR, which is the largest student-run radio station in the country. 
Um, I learned to broadcast for two and a half hours a women's softball game, which is, you know, people people like the football and basketball, men's basketball, but you really know if you can fill the dead air of a women's softball game, you can broadcast forever. Uh, in my junior year, I just, I, I had a, um, a, I started a sports business radio show. And, you know, like you, I'm sure you guys started on, on your idea and you saw it work. I mean, I basically, you know, had a, had an idea and, and realized that so many people want to talk to athletes, but they don't want to talk to you. And no one is talking to the business people and they'll talk to you forever. So you have these moments in your career and as a 20-year-old kid when Ray Rhodes got fired from the Green Bay Packers and they were saying, well, as an, can an African-American man survive in Green Bay? I'm like, okay, let's call Jesse Jackson. And, you know, four hours later, I'm leaving class so that I could talk to Jesse Jackson, you know. Um, and so, so, so it worked. So, but what is interesting, you know, you said to me just now, you know, it's kind of like someone saying that Santa Claus isn't real. Very early on in my career, I didn't understand why a lot of people hated me. Um, and it really wasn't until maybe like eight years in, nine years in, when I came on Twitter, when I could see it, <laughs> that that was the reason. Because I put the money into sports and they thought, and a bunch of people thought they were into sports because of the distraction. And so, you know, BuzzFeed called me up and said, hey, we're going to write a 5,000-word piece on why so many people hate you. Would you like to participate? And I said, yeah, of course I would. I don't, yeah, I don't want to just read it. Of course. And, and it was written by an impressive writer, and, and he basically concluded, I mean, that was the main crux of the story, that people start with the idea that, although I think that I'm pop-up video and telling you cool things, people don't want to know that Tiger Woods won $1.44 million after a five, 30 seconds after he putts to win the Masters. And, you know, but I continued, and I, I think Twitter, for me, you know, I, I think there's probably 35 or 40% of the world that hates me and 60% likes me, and I've come to accept that, and I'm polarizing, and in the end, it's good, because... You know, I think that a lot of people don't understand that you're either someone or no one in this world, and there's very little in between. And if you're in between, you're kind of like in no man's land. And if people hate me and still watch me and pay attention to me, that's fine. Um, and if people love me, well, that's great too. <laughs> well, there's so much to unpack from. I know. I'm sorry. I'm talking so much. No, not at all. From, no, not at all. It's great. It's great. So much to unpack from that. But the first two things, I think what's so funny about that is like even when people get angry <laughs> or lash out at something like that, you're not making things up. You're just right. communicating what actually does exist. And I think it communicates an additional pressure to these athletes that it is a business, which then can affect performance. It's not this like purity where the money lives outside the bubble of right. these games and performances going on, and no more so than golf, where you can see exactly how many dollars down to the cent are tied to every stroke taken, which is always right. the one, most one of, one of the interesting I, thing to me. One make. of the things I do is I, 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 I will analyze that. So the quick math basically is they tell you how much first, second, third is, and and then if someone ties, like say someone ties for third, well then it's the combination of what they were third and fourth, and then the two guys split it, you divide it by two. So I frequently say, 
how much a putt costs, uh, <laughs> how much an NFL, a guy who was in college, dropped in the draft. I remember the first time that happened. You know, I was at the NFL draft in New York, and, and Matt Leinert was supposed to go first, and he went 10th. You know, and I said, well, he lost about $10 million guaranteed, or doing the same with Aaron Rodgers. And then, you know, and then covering, I think, out of that came a, a complex instrument, which was loss of value insurance. And, you know, then people started paying for, well, what happens if I drop in the draft? Can I pay for a product that will pay me, you know, if I fall this far per pick, you know, at, at each pick? And that became a, a product to cover. So, you know, that's also the cool things as well. I mean, you normally think, well, insurance, that's a really boring topic. Some of the, I mean, some of the insurance stories, some of the trademark stories, some of the things that I've done that I think people say, oh, it's business, it's boring, are among the most fascinating stories. And uh, it's hard, too, because obviously you bring in the money when someone when someone wins or loses. And again, I think sometimes people don't want to hear that and they, they especially feel bad if like Aaron Rodgers dropped to 23 and he was supposed to go one, you know? Um, and for me, I, the, I, 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 the only thing is sometimes there is timing involved, but it's hard to pick the exact timing. Like some of the things I've done, memorabilia when someone dies. Well, what's, what's the right timing on that? I mean, is it 24 hours? I mean, I want to be first to talk about it. That's my trademark. But at the same time, there's sometimes sensitivities. And I've kind of played with that over time. And, and it's kind of trial and error based on how people have reacted in the past. And I think that's to your credit, too, just listening to you talk about the way that you're engaging with people who follow you or might disagree with you but still follow you, that you've learned to kind of not take that as personally as you definitely could, I think, in an era of social media where you're getting immediate feedback on everything that you're doing, especially something where you're putting information out to receive feedback on it. That's a credit to you to understand like the area in which you operate and just continuing to do things you enjoy in spite of however many people might disagree with you. Um, I think it's really hard for a lot of people to grapple with. And in doing so, they just fail to take any type of risk on putting themselves out there because they don't feel like they want to get rejected. So they just don't say anything at all rather than taking a stance on something um, and risking some of that. I think think some of that comes from, you know, when, when I got on Twitter, I was one of the first journalists on Twitter in March of 2009. And, and I didn't put out information. I didn't go on Twitter to disseminate my information that wasn't the idea it was because i had to cover the secondary story as a business journalist and i had covered blogs and i had covered newspapers and i you know i was reading when i started i was reading 200 sports sections every morning i'd wake up at five o'clock because i'd have to spend two and a half hours figuring out what my secondary business story was going to be and when i got on twitter it was like wow i can pick and choose where i can follow it's just it's just a more effective thing for me to do. And so the fact that that's where I come from, it means that I, yes, now it is a big dissemination tool and I, you know, got to 2 million followers and it's big, been a big part of my brand, but it's still about the people. It's still about the crowdsourcing. Sometimes I put something out there and I'm wrong and I, and I, and I'm willing to say I'm wrong. Sometimes I put something out there and I don't realize that how big it is and it's more of a story or I put a poll out there 
And I think that if you if you're willing to listen um, and you're willing to be rational, I think social media can really be great because I have two jobs as a journalist. One is to do the journalistically responsible thing for journalism, and two, which is more important now than ever before, and they're not mutually exclusive, but two is write stories and talk about things that people want to hear about and read about. And having my ear close to the conversation allows me to hit that over and over again and be the best at nailing the things that people want to read about and hear about. And I'm so much, while I'm a niche guy, I'm also a generalist in that I'm covering every single business of everything, which means if I want to use my time to the best of my ability, then I have to nail the right things and hit the right things. Yeah, that's, it's interesting that you have really understood both of the sides that you have to cover things that are out there then you have to cover the things that people want to hear um when you look back over um after that junior year at northwestern until where you are now you've covered and met and done some of the coolest sporting and business events in the history um what has been one event that you've covered Um, that has stuck out to you uh, just like personally um, as either just like the most enjoyable or the most powerful moment? I mean, there's, there, there are so many, I think the, the, the greatest thing is, is, you know, growing up with athletes and, you know, it's not, not an event, but it's, you know, I've been covering Maria Sharapova since she was 14 years old. I mean, we can we can sit. I've interviewed her 35 times. I can sit down with her and in a in a Q and A in front of 300 people and not even have to prepare anything. And you know, she's ribbing me and I'm ribbing her. I mean, I guess you know that's 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 a journalist's dream. Um, and you know, knowing the owners for so long and just you know just doing this for 18 years. Um, you know, being at 13 Super Bowls and the NBA Finals and, you know, walking around and know, you know, knowing that LeBron knows who I am or I'm not trying to bother anyone and, you know, someone at a major before a putt sees me, uh, you know, by the ropes and, you know, shakes my hand or something. I mean, you, you don't get over that. Those are the cool moments. I think people think that, and that's why you're that's why you're in it that's why i'm in it because i enjoy it and i've always been so obsessed with sports i i you know in the book outliers which i'm sure you guys have read i mean you know they talk about how steve jobs and bill gates were born in the same year i think it was 1958 and it just happened to be that that was the first year when when they got to college their freshman year that was the first year that computers were in libraries and that's you know one of the reasons why they became bill gates and steve jobs and for me, I was born in 1978, and I, I, I got into college, and I was in college in 96. I asked if I really needed an email, and by the time I was out, of course I needed an email, and of course the internet was exploding. So I, I, was, a, I was able to, I think, um, it was the first time that, that meritocracy really mattered. I think for a long time, kids would just have to toil you know, from 21 to 30. And, and sure, yeah, I had an idea of the niche, but I think that the internet allowed 
ESPN to say, okay, we're going to pay this kid $43,000 a year. He could, he knows the internet. He knows, you know, what people want and that kind of thing. And so I feel lucky that I was born when I was born and, and kind of, I, I, I think I took advantage of it. And it's just, it's amazing that I've been in this for, for 18 years. I've, I've just seen so much and, you know, literally every day I wake up excited, and, but I also wake up every day as if someone's going to steal my job. Um, and I, I, I've always behaved with that attitude. I, the hard part for me is to enjoy and revel in, in the great things that I've done. And I think that's a hard thing for me because I, 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 I don't, I want to continue to be the guy who they say was five years ahead. Yeah, Darren, that's so interesting you say that. Have you read the book Zero to One by Peter Thiel? I have not, but oh. I, I know I, I know of Peter, and I've been told to read the book. Got it. You should absolutely read the book. It's incredible. And one point he makes in it, which is really funny, is kind of about the exact anecdote you just you uh, you just laid out about those two guys being born in the same year and kind of being right. shaped generationally, and that's sort of how we shape like Gen X, Millennial. And now we partition between those two, but I think it's kind of a cool blend of both because actually in that book, he tries to dispel the myth that it was kind of like chance that those two guys were born in the same year and when computers were coming up. So like, why wouldn't they have done that? Um, but you make an interesting, um, kind of like but parallel there were other people born that year, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, exactly. But, and you make an interesting parallel to that because yes, maybe that brought you into that phase, but then you also carry kind of like cross generation characteristics of just creating your own job. Like nothing existed right. before that. And I think that's one of the most exciting things, both about like new age technology, but also about what's being encouraged now of our youth and children from ages like really young grade school, especially now through college on how important any type of facet of entrepreneurship is all the way up through choosing what you want for a career and that you can kind of build that up. Yeah, and it's it's hard now. I have a daughter who's going to be seven and twin boys who are going to be five. <laughs> You're in the fun it's, zone. It's, yeah, and it's, it's hard to, you know, I think one of the reasons why I've been successful is because I've been obsessed with certain things. And, you know, when I was seven, I think I started my sports obsession and I used to play a... a a computer baseball game called Micro League, where essentially I'd press a button and then I would score it. It was a baseball game. I would score it, and you know, in 1989, uh, Franklin came out with a calculator, and I tried to memorize the baseball encyclopedia. Uh, you know, so that I could. That was my way of like impressing people. Like your father could ask me a trivia question about players in 1955 that I would say. I, I, I would answer, you know, I would be able to answer the, you know, the question by naming the entire 1955, you know, Brooklyn Dodgers roster that beat the Yankees. And so I loved, you know, learning about stats and being obsessed. And, you know, so as a father now, it's kind of like I feel like obsession is one of the keys to success. But my kids, you know, like if my kids playing my uh, guitar, do I do I, you know, give him crazy lessons right now or do I let it happen? And kind of that for me, that's an interesting part because I know how my obsession has kind of 
helped me and I've loved it. And now for my kids, I want to almost breed that obsession, but I also don't want to be like a tiger dad. And I want, I, I want them to be able to find their obsession and enjoy themselves into their obsession instead of it being me pushing it. So because you are um, in, you know, in with a bunch of athletes and you just describe it, you have some like really good relationships with people. I always find that interesting, like you mentioned, uh, with like the tiger dad. Um, what are some ways when you talk to athletes about like parenting and I don't know, you see LeBron's kids already like dunking and stuff. What are some ways that like you talk with them about you know, how they raise their kids. It's like Steph Curry's really good, but people don't realize his dad was in the NBA. Like, how do you how do you talk with them, and what are some ways that they're, you know, letting their kids live similar to you, but also, like, understanding the value? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, I think it's really hard for those guys. I think that a lot depends on how much they've enjoyed their rise, and I think that's the direct relationship. Like, if... There, there's a lot of people who are successful, who are good, who actually um, are happy that they make millions now, but they actually did not enjoy their rise to the top. Like Andre Agassi's kids are, are not, and Steffi Graf's kids are probably not going to be tennis players because Andre hated his rise to the top, and you know, and his father just drilled him and drilled him, and he was meant to be a tennis player. Um, I think the you know it, it, it I, I feel like you know with the Jordan kids with Michael Jordan's kids you know they were at, at 15 they were already dubbed kind of failures you know so uh, and, and, and I think people look at that too and you know LeBron is willing to put his his kids kids out Bronny and Bryce and put his kids out there and show clips of them you know which means to me that he's 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 okay uh with with the building the pressure for them which which is interesting because he arguably is the most was the most hyped athlete of all time that actually came through (laughs) Um, and, and it's amazing to me i mean that's one of the lebron has been a guy that i covered since he was 16 and I'll never forget, I'll never forget, you know, when he's 18 and he's just drafted the NBA, I'm at his third or fourth game and I'm covering his endorsements and I I, I just, I I could not imagine that a guy who really didn't have a father figure who moved around like 10 times and only lived with his mother and had the maturity that he had um, and the business acumen that he had. You know, so it's. I think it's a function of who those people are, how they were brought up, whether they enjoyed their rise, not whether they enjoy it now, but whether they enjoy their rise and and whether they enjoy kind of the teaching. Because a lot of athletes, more than you think, have negative experiences about that. What have been, um, if not one or a few of the harder stories to cover? Um, especially from the business side. I mean, it's not all rainbows and million-dollar contracts. There are some tough things. There are some tough decisions. Um, We had a a gentleman on our podcast that went through a very tough um, injury in the NFL and was essentially just, like, hung out to dry by his team. Um, So there's just not, you know, it's not all $100 million shoe contracts for LeBron. There's some tough stuff. What's been a story that's been, like, you know, shooken you up a little bit. Well, 
I mean, <laughs> I've gotten, I've gotten, uh, I've gotten a, a, a couple. Uh, well, I, I was once, I was held hostage in Vietnam once. That was interesting. <laughs> what? Um, so I, I did a, I did an hour uh, documentary on on Nike, and I, you know, I told Nike. Uh, which was nominated for an Emmy, and I was very proud of it. And the amount that Nike cooperated with me was awesome. I, I you know, I basically said, "Hey, uh, I want you got, you know, Phil Knight still hasn't done a good job of answering the question of like all the way back and 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 sweatshops and did he feel bad about it and whatever. And people still think that it's a sweatshop scenario. And I think that you guys, you know, have a long way to go in explaining where you're at now. So I said, okay, let's. You know, I'd like to open up three factories in Vietnam. I'll give you 24 hours, and I'll we'll talk and whatever. And you know, at at some point, you know, you have a government minder who walks around with you. And just put it this way: at at one point in the middle of the night, we did not have our government minder, and they found out about it, and they took our tapes and promised we weren't going to leave the country. At which point, an NBC negotiator had to get involved, and <laughs> that was that that was a little tense. Um, uh, but, but all was good. Um, autograph stories, you know, there, there is certainly, uh, if you look at Johnny Manziel and Jameis Winston, there were tons of autographs that were coming out of Florida State and Texas A&M, especially with Manziel. And I had information that, that Johnny, you know, after winning the Heisman, uh, was getting paid to sign his autograph. And I was very, very close to essentially you know making him he would not come back to texas a&m he'd have to he'd have to turn pro because he'd be ineligible um and i was very very close to the final piece of information i needed to get i ultimately didn't um and he was suspended for a half a game for not uh, for who knows what the ncaa claimed it was but in the meantime the chancellor of the texas a&m system called me uh you know, a dumb, irresponsible journalist, and and there and I had some death threats, and I had to hire some security, and then I did it the year later with Jameis Winston, which is also an, an autograph situation where did not get the receipts at the end or the actual video that I needed to to, to uh, you know get it over the goal line, but um, you know those are those are the the scenarios if you're going to be a journalist, those are the things that that you have to be willing to do. And, uh, and it isn't always pretty. Well, first of all, the Vietnam situation is intense. <laughs> that is, that is, uh, you can always put that in your back pocket. If someone says, Hey, tell me about a fun fact. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. what, uh, and, and I've actually never heard you answer this and I'm not sure if you do take a stance on this, but, um, what's your stance on paying college athletes? Now that we're talking about the bridge between, um, paying and playing. Um, so, I do believe that college athletes should get paid for their likeness. They should get paid a percentage for their jersey sales. Uh, Because what's happened is, I mean, fans want a jersey with a player's name on the back of it. That's what they want. So why do we play this charade that if you don't put the name on the back and it's just his number and now teams by the way are schools are scared now and so then now they just have a number 19 for the year and a number one which isn't what fans want either yeah. um but i think you know yeah you cut him in on the jersey sales for a, for a 60 dollars jersey the gross price is 30 that's what the the store sells it to the what nike sells it to the store for and 
you know, and you and and so a royalty would be like you get two dollars a jersey. So if you're a massive player, if you're Tim Tebow or someone who's incredible, um, or Zeke Elliott, I mean, you'd, you'd make ten or fifteen thousand dollars. Those guys should be able to get that. If you want to put it in escrow and say when you graduate, you know, maybe add that layer. I don't even think you should. But they should be able to market themselves. And, you know, the schools and the NCAA didn't say, oh, no, 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 because if you pay a guy for a jersey, then there's going to be recruiting advantages that go on where some booster is going to buy 10,000 jerseys. Well, let me tell you something. If you don't think Alabama uh, and Clemson and Ohio State don't have recruiting advantages to start based on who their boosters are, then, you know, I got a bridge to sell you. It's ridiculous. (laughs) So, so I think they should get paid. For, they should be able to market themselves. They should be able to do endorsements while they're in school, and they should be able to get a piece of their jersey sales. Paying, I, I just think that's that's complicated because how do you pay a running back and not pay his offensive line? And I, I think it's a lot more complicated. Um, so that's the way I would do it. So we've covered a lot um, from Vietnam to pay, playing, paying college players to LeBron um, to Maria Sharapova. You cover a lot um, in regards to business, um, strictly from a business perspective, because a lot of people that listen are uh, entrepreneurs or started their own businesses and things like that. How do you, uh, well, actually another thing, I, was, I remember when we first met, um, you had to plug in your phone because you had like 250 text messages and your phone was dying. Yeah, from closing my eyes for 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. How do you... Um, how do you stay organized? What tools do you use? Um, uh, even if it's simple things like a notebook or a Google Calendar, what are some of the ways with all the information coming in, all the tweets you're sending out, all the responses you need to make, all the up-and-coming yep. stories, uh, just like straight up strategically for somebody that needs to stay organized, how do you do that? Because I've never okay, so met that's someone a, that, that's, that's as fascinating on. One. Yeah, that, that's a fascinating one because obviously – Sometime around maybe, I think as social media got built up, I'd say 2014 or 15, it got impossible for me to live life as a person doing this on my own. And I had to figure out some sort of system. One system is my calendar. I write down on a white pad. Every seven days, I will rewrite it. And that's so that I know it in my head, right? So I've written Brett Gornick, three o'clock January 29th podcast over eight times (laughs) since we since we so so I have the calendar both on a physical pad in front of me and I've written it down like I know I have a four o'clock meeting I know I have a five o'clock meeting so I actually memorize my day so I can't get it wrong so writing down that process helps and people think that's crazy well isn't in your calendar it could actually pop up that doesn't work for me Number two is to have, to, to allow people to be my mini sports business reporters. So I let people know that through the content I put out and the content that you take in from me, what I'm looking for. And I am the conduit and you come to me and if you find something great, I will give you credit. That means that I'm going to be better because I'm going to work harder than another sports business reporter, but I'm also going to be better because I have the world as my team. So that's number two. Then I have more personal relationships with people. I have six to ten guys who love to give me 
tips and things that I should be covering. And they send me texts and emails. And then I have the ultimate, which is a guy who sits on Twitter 24-7 for me. Uh, I, I pay him the equivalent of a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. And when I say the equivalent, it is um, he's a ticket broker. And I receive information ahead of time, and I give him that information to act on it. <laughs> so if someone is retiring in 25 minutes and their final game is going to be some point and they're going to announce it, you know, there's been times where he's bought out, you know, a half a stadium and made $100,000 in 11 minutes. And because because the <laughs> SEC is not engaging in this, that's the type of information that I, you know, I remember there was a there was a Cubs bobblehead, the championship Rizzo Bryant bobblehead or something like that and you know, the the, the bleacher tickets were like $5 because it was going to rain out and I found out when it was going to be rescheduled. And then he bought those tickets that were worth what they were worth in the moment because it was going to get rained out, and sold them at what they were worth at what the what the day that they were actually going to play the game was at. So there's someone who I pay through information, and other than that, he works just for me. And there's a couple ways we interact. Uh, he'll send me about 15 emails a day, which are kind of low on the totem pole. Then there'll be texts, which will be about 50 to 80 texts a day on what I should know, what's going on, who sent a good tweet, whatever. I've probably gotten 10 while I'm talking to you, I can tell. And then there's a phone call, which is the code red, which is something that I need to stop my day and, you know, I'm doing something else, but it's something that is ultimately very important. So that's so I have the system of writing down. I have the system of the world acting as my sources. I have real sources. I have people that kind of like like to interact with me, and then I have my guy, and that's how I win every day. <laughs> that is that that's is such a, a system. Yeah, that's a great system, Darren. I'm going to the waste management this weekend. What does your guy have for me? What's the hot take? Are you going to waste management? I sure am. Yeah, that's a great. I mean, that's that's a, that's an awesome tournament. I, I went to that tournament when it when it, when the Super Bowl was out there too. Um, oh, sweet! And uh, yeah, that 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 is a that that that's an awesome tournament. I mean, I guess I, what's the big? I forgot where the big hole is where everyone's screaming. Number it's like sixteen six, or seventeen? Yeah, number what sixteen. Six? Yeah, sixteen. 16. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean. I think there's nothing like it. The Beth Page U.S. Open was like that with Phil, you know, and the screaming and the. But yeah. you know, there's 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 nothing like that in golf. That's a that's a that's a really great event. Yeah, the only closest other thing I can think to it, I went to the Ryder Cup when it was in Chicago, and yeah. the first tee yeah. was like that. Bubba mid round was like raising his palms. It was insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My that, favorite, one of my favorite videos in all of sports is Tiger holing out at 16. It was like what put that hole like totally on the map. I'm trying to think of like the loudest place I've ever been uh, for a sporting event. I mean, there, there's some weird ones like, you know, like, I don't know if you remember this guy. But do you remember Kimbo Slice? Yes. Yeah. So I went to his first fight in like Newark, New Jersey. So you see this guy on the people go, what's your top 10 sporting events? And like 
the Kimbo Slice is in the top ten, and they're like, "What are you talking about? You've been to like, you've been to like thirteen NBA Finals and fifteen Super Bowls." I'm like, "I know, but like, this was like the first time like the internet came alive. Like, he was on YouTube videos knocking people out in the streets, and then he was before you, and like his name, Kimbo Slice, from a branding perspective, was awesome. He looked like." the person that you would build out of a video <laughs> game, and then he was, like, in front of you. And I remember when Kimbo Slice came out for the first time, all these people who had watched him who've never seen him in person, I mean, it was so loud. And unfortunately, the, the creation that he was didn't uphold what happened next. But, but uh, you know, if he, if he could have made it into the WWE and Vince McMahon could have controlled his character, man, that would have, that would have been exciting. <laughs> who is your uh, who's been your favorite athlete to like get to know or to talk to or kind of report alongside of um, well Kobe and JJ Watt are my two are my two guys um, I've done some business with Kobe I've done a lot of Q&A's and, and JJ probably just from a talking you know, I, I, I think I probably talk to him every day um, just, just because he you know, I respect him, and, and he loves business. He just, he is obsessed with business. Um, I would never want to do an endorsement deal with him. If, 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 I, if you think that, if you're trying to get an athlete who you're trying to control and to do an endorsement deal just based on what you want, you shouldn't sign J.J. Watt because he's going he's gonna to tell you what he wants and what he needs. And so his love of business, I mean, we, we just love to just shoot it. And that's probably the, you know, the most valuable relationship I have. Yeah, that, that's, that's great. Those are two, uh, two crushers. How has uh, – I always Kobe, wonder Kobe, this. Kobe, Kobe is like, you know, I mean, the, the, how competitive he is. Yeah. But even in business is ridiculous you know like I mean I for my 30th birthday I played Kobe one-on-one -on -one and like he did not even let me get up a shot <laughs> like not even like because the possibility of him thinking that I could get one point was so disastrous to him that he 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 couldn't let me get it close to the rim you know like and 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 you know that's serious like he you know as mike tyson said like he will eat your children he is he is he is the most competitive person on earth um <laughs> and sometimes when i think i have fire it's not his fire you know how has he handled retirement uh i think he's basically put the comp his competitive nature has gone into business yeah um you know, so with body armor and, you know, he's he's angry at Gatorade and he's going to win in that sense or, you know, for for his for his investments, for his, you know, channeling it into winning an Oscar and uh, writing a children's book. And I mean, a lot of these I, one of the things that I feel like successful people have is just. They have to do, and I, I'm, I'm along these lines, they have to do because if they are not continually doing something, I mean, I think that if I'm not continually going and I had to build my life like this, I'm probably in a, in a men mental institution. I really feel, I, I feel that, you know? Yeah, I you couldn't what? have described us any different. People probably think we des we need to be in one now. 
No, yeah, no, it's 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 just that I, I have an energy and some of it's built and some of it's work trained ADD and some of it's but 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 you know the guys who are the craziest people on earth are the billionaires that I know. I mean they're they're absolutely completely nuts and they've built a business and they've built a philosophy and they've built a hunger that exists every day despite the money that they have because it's just how they're wired. And I think, you know, I'm kind of wired that way. I'm sure you guys are wired that way. Um, my challenge is to, you know, look to you guys to figure out how I, I don't, I, I have not yet figured out how to slow down. I have moments of slowing down. So I, 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 I cook to keep my phone away. I, you know, I'll go in a bath for 20 minutes. There are moments where I keep my phone away. Um, and I'm, and I've built that up successfully over the past couple of years, but I don't have a good day to day strategy of, of unwinding. Um, so that's, that's my next goal over the next 10 years to somehow figure that out. Yeah. And I think, you know, we obviously are, will continue to talk and chat, but for anyone listening to just like a quick piece on that for people who have a hard time slowing down and who have a hard and who have something to work on. Like that's the biggest part is that your job has an unlimited potential right. of information that you could gather. There's no cap to it, which is like the entrepreneur's dilemma is the self-care, why we help so many people kind of like in this field and what we had to deal with doing it exactly to ourselves is how do you cap work with no cap? And right. to your point that you've already baked in some of those little tiny sprinkles of like special experiences to you, whether that's cooking or a bath or an easy meditation, and it is amplifying the enjoyment you find out of those small moments and not coming out of them regretting not having more of them, but instead saying, I cherish this 10 minute period, this two minute period I have just to close my eyes and breathe. And counting that as a win then builds momentum to, to enjoy more of them, not regretting uh, not having enough time to do more of them, if that makes sense. So just like amplifying the gratitude you feel for stepping off the achievement cycle to just show some appreciation because you know you're going to hop right back on it. It's just your nature. Yeah, and I, I think um, th there are moments and victories on letting things go and realize, oh, you know, that wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, that's also one of the reasons why um, at, when, I, when I went running, I, I, I did my Instagram stories of here I'm running, but there was no way I could do work. Um, there was no way I could do work. One more thing, because I, I just remembered this. So... So uh, for the marathon, there were a couple great moments, and, and one of them was like, um, I think we kind of visualized, you know, like a mile 20 and kind of like, you know, breaking through a wall at mile 20 and not hitting the wall. And one of the things that I did was I, uh, I kept my phone on. I knew people were following me, so I, I did a couple stories at mile three and seven and 12 and 20, and then I put it down. And then I kept my phone on just so that I could feel it vibrate from mile like 25 to 26, which is just so cool. So I figured out. That, that is, that's cool. So as I was coming closer, I was getting, my arm was vibrating, and it was awesome. <laughs> you know, because I knew people were following me, and it was close, and 
Um, and that was good. And then at the end, I almost died, not because there was anything wrong with me physically, but because I had put so much like Bengay Icy Hot or whatever <laughs> the sponsor was on from my hands onto my knees. And then I ate a cookie without oh. washing my hands. And I felt my esophagus burning, and I was like, oh, my God, this would be such a bad way to die. (laughs) (laughs) Death by Tiger Bomb cookies. Yes. Well, that just was Joe spitting in your ear to stop eating the cookies. Yeah. I know. I know. But we we did it, and it was great, and, you know, I I thank you for what you did. and. uh, and my goal now, I'm going to run Tokyo 2020 and, and get under four hours. So I have 24 minutes to get off. Wow. Um, so that's, that'll be my next, my next thing. Although I'll do some other challenges before then, for sure. Well, that's fantastic. And uh, we have, it's cool that, that, that this conversation came full circle like that. The one question that we love to end with is around Jason and I's philosophy. And we... I, mean, I mentioned it in the meditation a little bit, but um, our whole philosophy around Live Better is to have the best day ever every single day. Um, and not just to have that, but essentially that it's your option to make it that through your actions, through what you appreciate. Um, if you could wake up tomorrow and do anything, uh, you don't have to have any meetings or you can have all your meetings. What would be Darren Ravel's best day ever? Oh, man. I, I, I honestly do feel like I like when I go to sleep every day I, I I've lived my best day um, uh, I, I had something happen to me in 2010 when I was at the Olympics in Vancouver where I almost died and I was not you know like if you're in a bad position and you get suddenly sick like Vancouver seems like it's a place that's okay, but I was I was alone in the Olympics and I got the wrong uh, I got the wrong medication for this thing, okay? And I was I was in bad shape, and uh, it took me a while to get out of it. But every day is the best day because I'm not where I was then, and I don't think everyone needs to have kind of like that near-death experience but as weird as it is to say it helped because like it's been you know i know the day that i got sick was was january 9th 2010 i knew the day that i got better and uh so every day I laugh that I'm still here. And when you come from that perspective, there's no way you can have a bad day. Um, so that's kind of my, my insight. So every day I laugh that I'm still here because I feel like I got lucky. Well, thanks for, uh, for sharing that. I know that that's uh, not something that's probably super easy to talk about. But the fact that you have taken that day and just realized how lucky every breath every single moment every cookie after a marathon is uh to enjoy um is something that we are um just so thankful to have to have you say that because it's just reassuring to um see people that uh, we might only ever see on social media or in the limelight on ESPN um, just be real and share their story, their struggles, and how they've found triumph in that. So 
this conversation has been incredible and we know um, you're probably getting into your next meeting right now so we'll definitely have to schedule around two to to dive more into some fun stuff because this was fantastic and um, you got for, it. I love you guys keep going for any of our listeners that don't follow you um, where can people find out um, about you where can they follow you on social media? Um, and where will you be coming up soon so they can catch you on the on the TV? So if, if you if you like sports, you should follow me on Twitter for sure at Darren Ravel D A R R E N R O V E L L. Uh, if you don't like sports and you like business or you'd like to just see a guy live a life of three kids under seven and you know the craziness and curiosity and everything else, I try to post a lot of Instagram stories and things in my feed. So that's also. At Darren Ravel, and I now I left ESPN about a, a month and a half ago, and I now work at the Action Network because I think sports betting is the next big thing. Um, and we're a, a website, actionnetwork.com, if you're into sports betting, and we also have a an app that's free. Or if you uh, want to be a better better, you pay for the good stuff. Awesome. Well, we're super thankful for your time, um, your energy your continual positive attitude and uh we will be here for your ride to tokyo so whenever you need anything you know you got us in your I'm back pocket use you guys. yeah <laughs> for sure all right darren thank, thank you. you so much have the best okay. day ever thank you so much for listening to the live better show awesome cool really fun guest we are extremely excited to extend you guys a discount on our retreat for listening to this episode. If you can make it to our next Live Better experience, email ham at livebetterco.org. H-A-M at livebetterco.org. Yet we go ham. You want a discount off the next trip? Hit us up. Have the best day ever.